It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. New to Podcast One, Sportsnet, is the Baseball and Show podcast. Listen each week to Kelly Nash and Scott Brom from MLB Network as they cover all the big storylines and trending topics on and off the diamond. Some past guests include Baseball Hall of Famer John Smoltz, player turned coach Joe Girardi. Listen free to the show exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOneSports.com, and the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend, leave a rating and review. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I've been wanting to have a podcast with Kevin Pelton for a while. He is amazing in July, not only with his free agency breakdowns and trade breakdowns for ESPN, but also he does great work on Summer League and one of the only people who does both super well. So it made sense to talk with him around this time about both. So we start with the off season kind of more broadly. Then we do the last half or so was on Summer League and our big takeaways and who stood out, who didn't stand out, all that sort of stuff. So the podcast runs about an hour, a little bit over an hour, and is brought to you by MeUndies. You can go to MeUndies.com slash RealGM, get 15% off, and it's a risk-free offer. There's also a second offer in the actual conversation about MeUndies. You can also check out Quip, amazing toothbrush, getquip.com slash RealGM, get your first refill pack for free, and our friends at TrueCar, great place to buy a new and used car. Again, we cover a lot of ground in this, so it, even if there's something for whatever reason that you're not enthralled with, keep going because there, there's a lot there, and I really enjoyed it, and I hope you will too. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks as always for having me. Well, I, I wanted the primary focus of this to be on Summer League. I mean, there have been a lot of other big things that have happened around the league that'll be a little bit more immediate. And I think where I want to start with you, because you've done some good work on this already, is the Kawhi Leonard, DeMar DeRozan, you know, the, the Raptors, Spurs trade, and where kind of how that changes the NBA landscape in the immediate. Because I mean, something that we've talked about a little bit is just where this puts the Raptors in the Eastern Conference hierarchy, if we assume full strength strength or something close to it. Yeah, I, I think that they're the best team in the East at this point. I mean, obviously Boston is going to be very good with the return of Gordon Hayward and then Kyrie Irving for the playoffs. You know, they had him part of the regular season. And Philadelphia, we're all excited to see what the next step that Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons take in their careers and, you know, whether Markel Fultz can be a bigger part of what they're doing next season. But Toronto was the best team in the East last year. It wasn't particularly close in terms of point differential, although it was reasonably close in terms of wins. And I think that, you know, if Kawhi Leonard is healthy, uh, they have upgraded substantially by going from DeMar DeRozan to him. I mean, the, the fact is, 
year after year, the Raptors played their best basketball with DeMar DeRozan on the bench. And while that's partially a testament to how awesome their bench unit has been, it's also a reflection of the fact that they haven't defended as well with him on the court, and he doesn't have the kind of impact offensively that his points per game would indicate. So if you can replace that with someone who last we saw him healthy was a top five, top definitely top four you know player in the league and and maybe even better than that you know if you don't account for the playing time in terms of just raw ability i mean i think that's that's a really substantial upgrade and we, uh, then D- getting danny green in the deal also was uh, a coup for the raptors who are now just completely flush with wing depth they're flush with wing depth and they're also flush with wings that can competently defend which is another really important part of this and i would say they're more than competently defend when you look at danny green even though he has to me taken a step back defensively over the last couple of years and then Kawhi, you know the last time he played was the best perimeter defender in the league and then og Ananobi, i thought he did a wonderful job overall in lebron i think dwayne casey should have given him that opportunity more frequently there were some times where they had cj miles out there largely for offensive reasons and and then surprise, surprise, LeBron James went off. And so now what they what I think they did is they certainly upgraded in the regular season at least a little bit, depending on what Kawhi Leonard they get. Of course, that's a huge caveat. DeMar DeRozan was a I would have had him in all NBA consideration rather than second team last year, but he was a wonderful regular season player last year. But more importantly for me, what the, this transaction did is it made Toronto a much more viable playoff team, not only because of that defensive increase and the wing depth increase, sort of paralleling not to the same degree, but what the Rockets did where you just have a lot of more guys to throw at other teams, but also because Kawhi at his best offensively during that 16-17 season was a more undeniable offensive player. You know, you could get into him a little bit. There were certainly situations where he got in a little bit of trouble, but the growth in his offensive game helped make him a player that was harder to shut down. And that is exactly what the Raptors needed next to Kyle Lowry was somebody who could shoulder the burden, who was a little bit more resilient that if you put a good defender on him, it wasn't going to, the the good parts of his game weren't going to fall away, especially when you couple in with DeRozan, that in the playoffs, you just call fewer fouls. It's something we've seen with DeRozan, something we've seen with James Harden as well. And I think Kawhi's game scales better for those circumstances than DeRozan's has. He's not as dependent on that foul drawing. Yes. And I think, you know, when I, when I crunch the numbers over the last, over the five years that the Raptors have made the playoffs, I believe, you know, waited for, for minutes played, it's 12% fewer free throw attempts per field goal attempt for DeRozan in that span. And, and then when you couple that with the fact that his effective field goal percentage, which is not particularly good in the first place, has also dropped substantially in the playoffs. That makes him, you know, a, a major negative factor on offense in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's interesting, probably under-discussed is the fact that as much as we focus on the isolation game with DeMar DeRozan and how that was something Toronto was trying to get away from last year and, and particularly now by hiring Nick Nurse, promoting Nick Nurse to replace Dwayne Casey, Kawhi is that kind of player too. He's going to isolate a lot himself. He's just going to do it much more efficiently because of the fact that he's going to make some threes in there and, and shoot a higher percentage. Yeah, and I just think his game is a little bit more sustainable, partially because he's just bigger. I mean, there are elements of this that matter if you're six foot eight, six foot nine, and stronger than for for Demar. And Demar's a, a capable athlete, to be sure. I mean, and he throws down some of the most ambitious dunks around, but. 
it's just a fundamentally different thing. And also with, while DeRozan deserves credit for shooting more threes, he still wasn't shooting a lot of them. I mean, it gets into a circumstance sometimes where you praise growth rather than saying he was at the level where he should have been before. I mean, he still could shoot a lot more of them, but Kawhi is much better at that and can slide into more of a secondary or a one and a half style role more than DeRozan could because of that shooting. And, and well, DeRozan's threes were somewhat more efficient than, you know, the long twos that he faced. Favored. It, it wasn't really a dramatic difference because of the fact that he was only shooting 31% from out there. You know, it, it, as much as we talk about the value of the three, you still have to shoot it at something close to league average to actually generally, you know, become dramatically more efficient if you're as good a mid-range shooter as DeRozan was. It is. And also for the Raptors, something that just fascinates me with the way their team is right now is just how many different guys they have because of this bench depth. And so they certainly have a, a best five to me, which would be something involving, depending on how everybody sh- performs this year with Lowry and Danny Green and Kawhi, obviously probably OG and then Abaco or Valanciunas, whoever looks better in that given game, I would say Abaco fits in better. But they also have, you know, Fred Van Vliet, who they re-signed, Pascal Siakam, DeLon Wright is still on this team. He wasn't included in the trade. And then if they can get something from CJ Miles or Norman Powell or any of their other, you know, any of their other kind of lottery ticket type things, that they can get a postseason rotation out of it without too much squeezing. And that's great if you can scale up. And d- deep teams are in many ways hurt by the playoffs because you can consolidation doesn't help them as much. But I think they strike a balance better now than they did even last year when they when they got so much from their bench. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. On the Spurs, I've said before that this solidifies them as a playoff contender. I would I expect them to make the playoffs next year as of right now, though the West is pretty loaded, their health is determining. But I remember last year, you know, they won, I think it was 47, even without basically Kawhi for the whole season. They get DeMar. DeMar will help them. Losing Danny Green will hurt their defense. And I wonder about this. This will be another huge test. We saw it last year without Kawhi, but another huge test of pop and the system's overall defensive acumen. But I framed it for a piece for The Athletic that I think it's in certain ways a good thing for the best teams in the West, the championship contenders, because they while they while the Spurs are a very good team, I don't see them as having a super high ceiling. Do you see it the same way or do you disagree with me? I agree in terms of their ceiling. I mean, I'm glad you made the point about Danny Green because I think too often that the kind of reductive analysis is oh, the Spurs are taking a team that won 47 games last year and adding DeMar DeRozan to it. Well, that's not what you're doing because you are subtracting, you know, a player who, well, frustrating probably to to the Spurs coaching staff, was nonetheless, you know, a valuable 3 and D role player for them and, and someone whose game in, in many ways uh, more complementary to their other core players than DeMar DeRozan's is. And it remains to be seen how, you know, you're going to fit DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge together given their desire to operate in similar similar locations on the court and you know if there's anyone that we trust to manage that transition it's greg popovich and the san antonio coaching staff but it's a transition nonetheless and in a conference as loaded as the western conference is with playoff contenders i mean i i don't think that the spurs are a playoff lock i'm, I'm very curious and i'm working through the uh, the real plus minus projections that uh, i annually do for espn i'm very curious to see what they spit out for the spurs yeah i'm interested in that as well and something we could mention for the west that's worth noting here is just how many teams there are that are capable. I mean, the Lakers are an interesting construction. We could talk about that if you want. 
but adding LeBron James certainly gets them, at least in the mix, I fully expect them to make the playoffs. I think that they can do that, and then we'll see how they portion minutes and all that, where it goes from there. But so you add them into what was already a strong picture, and with Paul George returning, Oklahoma City, and we'll see what happens with Robertson, like, I think they will be well-positioned as well. So you, you just have a lot of strength there, and injuries will play a major force in terms of where the line is, whether it's 42 wins or 44 or even something more in the 47-48 range, which I think it could be if teams stay full strength. And so, yeah, I don't think anybody outside of, off the top of my head, outside of like the Warriors and Rockets is an absolute lock, though there are certainly teams that I have stronger feelings on than others. Agreed with that. And and I am also working through the uh, Shaney projections. And, you know, I don't use the, the team win-loss records anymore because they did not prove nearly as predictive as the RPM projections did. But, you know, it's, it is worth noting that in this version of it that I've got right now, the, the eighth best team in the in the West wins on average 47 games. Whew. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot a lot to take in, and I think the other big storyline in the Western Conference is the Houston Rockets, that whatever it was, I mean, I think it was ownership's unwillingness to pay a certain level of luxury tax, you know, and they can do whatever they want. That's the, the benefit of owning a team. But to me, the Rockets, especially if it looks like they're going to get mellow in a couple days, that they, they will certainly be a good team, and they can go in a lot of directions. They have still have a ton of talent. They still have two bona fide, like first or second team, all NBA guys. They have the reigning MVP, who I was think is the completely deserving MVP. But if we want to frame this, and for many teams, I think we do this too often, frame it in terms of potentially winning a championship. Preliminarily to me, this looks like a significant step back. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think as I look at the Carmelo Anthony move, there actually are some reasons to be optimistic that he can be more effective with the Rockets than he was last year in Oklahoma City. I mean, frankly, his catch-and-shoot performance with the Thunder was below, I think, what you would have reasonably expected for him to do, given the the improved quality of shots he was getting and, and will surely continue to get with the Rockets. And, uh, you know, if he shoots better from there, I think everything starts to look a lot, a lot better. And, you know, he has experience certainly switching, even if not necessarily success at doing so. So he's comfortable in that system that Houston is running. But all that kind of goes out the window when you think about a hypothetical playoff matchup against the Warriors, who, who would just, it seems like, hunt Carmelo Anthony relentlessly on switches. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And also with Melo, you brought up the catch and shoot, which is incredibly important because a lot of what he what he creates with the ball in his hands could be beneficial on a team with less capable players. I, you know, you could think about Orlando or numerous other teams as, as examples of this, but Houston already has shot creators. They have Chris Paul and James Harden, two of the best, maybe two of the top five or even top like four best shot creators in the entire league. And so maybe there are ways to use staggers and you have him out there where it's not as superfluous. But what concerns me a lot with Melo on the Rockets is that if he can't really change his nature offensively on that team, the benefits are a little bit muted and the negatives against the best teams will be exploited. Absolutely. I mean, and one thing I looked at is can the Rockets use Carmelo in the post uh, against teams that switch and, and post him up against guards. And I mean, yes, he can probably be reasonably effective in that role, but is he going to be more effective in that role than, you know, Chris Paul and James Harden are in isolation against the big who in that, that equation? Uh, probably not. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how they get him enough shots to keep him happy. 
let's do the West a little bit more. Are there any other kind of moves or decisions in the West that have really stuck out to you? I'm going to be very interested to see what New Orleans looks like next year. I mean, yeah. that's a team that I, I think had a good offseason given the, the constraints of, you know, the fact that they, they weren't realistically probably going to play the luxury tax and they had the DeMarcus Cousins injury. So to, you know, to pivot from Cousins to getting Julius Randle at a, a bargain price and then uh, same thing with Alfred Payton to replace Rajon Rondo. I mean, it feels like they should be able to maintain a lot of what they did in the playoffs and perhaps even expand upon it, which Julius Randle is kind of that more intimidating physical force in their front court. But there definitely are a lot of questions about how it's going to work, uh, specifically with Peyton at point guard. Yeah, and really how they how they use Peyton because Rondo in many ways was more of a complimentary starter rather than a backup. This happens every once in a while with the team, and so you know wh- where they want to strike all those balances. They did bring back Ian Clark, but Ian Clark isn't a backup point guard. Like he he shouldn't really run the offense, and so how they do that. But what I'm really excited about most on on the Pelicans is the kind of three man big ecosystem with Anthony Davis, Nikola Mirotic, and Julius Randle. Demarcus Cousins is is absolutely a better basketball player than either one of the two guys outside of Anthony Davis in that rotation. But I think that you can run three man combination or two man combinations of any of those three guys and do really well, which is exciting. And the the fit elements of that if Gentry can get it right, if this coaching staff can really figure out how they all want to be used, because Randall is an absolute monster on switches. You can he can attack a lot of mismatches, and while he's not perfect defensively, I think you can kind of make that work with him and Davis. And then Miritich with either one of those guys, I think can work with the four spacing. And Miritich can he's not a great defender, but I think he's better than people think. Sometimes, sometimes he loses the benefit of the doubt there. And it's not perfect, certainly far from it, but I think it can work. That was a very generous description of Julius Randle's defense there. I, I think the other thing that uh, is going to be interesting to see is how much Julius Randle can maintain what he did last season in terms of his breakout performance. I mean, you know, frankly, before that, he had not been a particularly good offensive player in his NBA career. And last year, he kind of put it all together and was able to use that combination of size and strength. And then given that size and strength, being relatively skilled as far as putting the ball on the ground and and even sometimes making plays for teammates. So, you know, if he's able to continue doing that next season, then I think, you know, the the Pelicans could be right there with just about anybody in the West. The other one, well, two other ones I wanted to talk about briefly. So one, the Thunder getting Paul George back, absolutely massive, moving on from Melo at that point, completely not a surprise. But they made a big bet on Dennis Schroeder in terms of the luxury tax. It wasn't like they really sacrificed much in terms of flexibility because they're miles over the tax either way. And so if ownership green lit it up to a certain amount and he and Schroeder was a was, you know, puts them within that range, it's okay. But I I've been struck in this whole transaction with kind of why him? Because I understand the idea of that Reggie Jackson mold of a player who can play with and without and also the without Russell Westbrook part, they had Raymond Felton. So I think that need was less strong than it would have been if they had made this move, let's say, and it wasn't available, presumably, but like July 4th or something like that. But Schroeder could end up being good at that Reggie Jackson role, but we really haven't seen that because most point guards, especially point guards on teams like Atlanta has been the last couple of years where he's been the primary shot creator, even when they were a much better team, it still put a lot on his shoulders to see what he can be as a kind of a an off-ball guy, which is going to be important for his value as long as well as him actually like trying on defense. 
Yeah, yeah, that that would be interesting to see. Uh, yeah, as I noted in my trade grades, Shooter didn't shoot particularly well on catch and shoot threes last year. He did the couple years before that, and I think you're you're definitely counting on him getting back to that level, and then also just being happy and content in that role. You know, he he chafed in a bench role behind Jeff Teague early in his career. One of the one of the factors that went into the Hawks deciding to trade Teague and promote promote Shooter to the starting lineup. Sam Presti and, and Billy Donovan had a chance to talk to Shooter about what his role was going to be before this trade went down. It's been reported, so you know clearly he knows what he's going to be doing in Oklahoma City, and I, I have to assume that he doesn't come in there and think he's going to be the starting point guard. Whether he's actually going to be able to be happy with that role is another thing entirely. I actually think maybe the more interesting bet that Oklahoma City is making is on Jeremy Grant as a starting power forward. That to me is a really fascinating move in terms of you know replacing Carmelo Anthony in the starting lineup. I mean, Grant mostly played center last year, as I recall it, and you know that now you're putting together a starting lineup that has even less shooting around Westbrook and Paul George. It's going to be interesting to see how how Billy Donovan makes that work offensively. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought about the mechanics of the way the rotation is going to work. But yeah, I think Jeremy Grant is probably the leader in that role for right now. I pulled up cleaning the glass for last year and they have it as he played mostly power forward. But I think some of that is also just drawing distinctions between different guys. And Grant, I mean, the spacing is is a big, big part of that. And remember that because Robertson got hurt, the dynamics of their rotation were completely different. And playing those two guys together, you know, like, I think sometimes these things get overwrought because in the regular season, most opponents don't specifically game plan for an opponent like, hey, Oklahoma City, they don't have a ton of shooting, hang in and all that kind of stuff. But again, like the Rockets, they're a team that wants to make a big run. So these structural limitations are actually relevant. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And still, you know, even if you're not necessarily game planning, hey, let's leave Jeremy Grant, you know, let's sag off him. Uh, that's definitely going to be something that's going to come up just in terms of players' willingness to help off of Grant and Robertson, et cetera, to, you know, help on a Russell Westbrook drive. Let's see. I have Grant playing about 70% of his minutes last year at center. It does seem like the discrepancy is that uh, Ben has Patrick Patterson as the center when he played with Grant, and I have Grant as the center in those lineups. The other team I wanted to talk about briefly was the Clippers. I think what they did is is really fascinating because they went on this idea of let's be good, let's be relevant. I don't know if they're I don't I'd have to run the numbers a little bit more. I don't think they're a playoff team as of right now, though they're in that mix of like depending on who gets hurt. But they did so without really sacrificing much in terms of flexibility in 2019. The only guy who got a fully guaranteed contract as a free agent was Montrez Harrell and I like him as a backup center, you know, $6 million is not a big commitment. And so I wonder how this is going to work out for them. But I thought that their front office, now that Rock Divers has moved only to being Doc Rivers, did an ace job, or maybe even a great job of working within the constraints that appear to have been on them. The, the thing I thought was interesting when I was going through their playing time projections is Doc talked a lot during the season about how invigorated it was to have to use young players and, and particularly rely on their two-way players uh, because of the injuries they had last season and the lack of depth that created. And now they've gone completely the opposite direction where, you know, they've got their, you know, they do have young talent, certainly. The, the two lottery picks, Shea Gilgis Alexander and Jerome Robinson, and we'll see how much those two guys play as rookies. But, you know, they've got veteran backups at basically every position and particularly in the front, you know, at the forward spots, uh, adding Bob Mute, adding Mike Scott. 
Wesley Johnson picking up his player option. You got Sam Decker. There is an incredible crowd there, and it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of playing time for someone like Sandarius Thornwell, who gave them some decent minutes defensively as a rookie. So I'm curious how that's going to unfold. And, and kind of in related, uh, one thing that surprised me when I was running my playing time projections, the Clippers have the third oldest average age weighted by my projection projected minutes played of anyone in the league. So that's kind of fascinating for a team that we think of is in this transition stage. Yeah, that is really interesting. And swapping, you know, trading, or not trading, letting DeAndre Jordan go, basically. But they got older at center, too. Like, that, the, the Rivers for Gortat swap made them made them an older team. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Hmm. <laughs> I think I stumped you at that one. Well, yeah, it's not, it, it makes sense when you think about where the rotation is going. Well, also, I mean, that factors in probably a lot of minutes for Gallinari, who is, you know, we'll, we'll have to see how much he actually plays because of, because of injuries and everything else. Do you want to talk about the Lakers, or I'm sure we'll have other times to talk about that in the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, what what, what can you say about the Lakers offseason that has, hasn't already been Well, what, I, what I'm wondering is just who they're actually going to play and who they're going to play together, because they that, have all of these guys, and so, like, I I've been critical of it, and sometimes Lakers people are in my mentions. They're like, "Oh, you know, like, like look at all the all the talent they have." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's true. You know, they have a lot of, and they have a lot of guys that I like." But putting together five man lineups, much less a rotation with this team, is incredibly challenging. And when you think about all of the personality and personal dynamics that are in play here, it's going to be just a massive challenge for Luke Walton. <laughs> that is that is a, a very fair assessment of the situation. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the Lakers are among the teams that seem to have the problem that they have too many players who, at the very least, if they don't necessarily deserve to play a lot of minutes, in the case of, you know, for example, Lance Stevenson, expect to play a lot of minutes. And you have to assume that, you know, the reason the Lakers front office went out and signed these guys is because of the fact that they're they're planning for them to play a lot of minutes. So, you know, one of the defenses I've seen at the Lakers is that there's been too too much criticism of the fact that they picked up a number of non-shooters because of the fact that their young players, you know, with the exception of Lonzo Ball, generally are pretty good shooters. You know, Josh Hart, Kuzma was way ahead of schedule last year as a rookie in terms of his shooting development. Brandon Ingram shot a high percentage, if not necessarily a high volume so you know you put those guys around lebron james and those do seem like a lot of the type of players you would want with lebron uh, at, at least perhaps offensively in the case of uh, you know some of those guys kuzma in particular but then you know if, if you were expecting all those guys to play 30 plus minutes a night what would be the need to go out and sign Stevenson and Rondo and Beasley to go along with them, given you've also got Contavious Caldwell-Pope as an option. So how kind of they manage the the playing, how Luke Walton manages the playing time between the young guys who could potentially be part of the future and these veterans who are probably only there for one year before they go out and spend their cap space again next summer, that's going to be a fascinating balance to strike. Yeah, it definitely will be. Plenty more to break down with Kevin Pelton, but I want to take a moment to talk to Boo about underwear. Yes, underwear. Everyone needs it. New is better than old. Have to be comfortable, so you should get some MeUndies. I've heard about them for years, but actually just got my first few pairs recently and absolutely love them. They are, as a testament to what you like the best, they are the first ones that I wear after a wash. Extremely comfortable, supportive, and there's also the great convenience of it. They come right to your door. You can get a matching pairs. They have a lot of different styles and everything like that. And 
Something I love about their offer with Real Jam Radio, first of all, there are two separate things, so make sure you listen to both. So the first thing is that there is a no-risk offer, so if you're not happy, they will refund you the cost of your underwear and you get to keep them, which is awesome. And because you're listening to Real Jam Radio, you get 15% off your first pair plus free shipping. So what you do, you go to MeUndies.com slash RealGM and you can check that out. Again, that's MeUndies.com slash RealGM for 15% off and that no-risk offer. And we have a second thing on top of that. So if you order a pair, take a screenshot of your transaction and send it to gift at podcast1.com, we'll send you another pair for free. So if you do the first deal, you get a pair risk-free for 15% off. And if you do the second one on top of it, you get a second pair for free. So the first 25 people to send a proof of purchase, screenshot of it, of the purchase or of the receipt to gift at podcast1.com and make sure to put Real GM, Real GM Radio in the subject line and make sure that you came from us and then tells tells podcast one that it came from us, then you can get that second pair for free. So it's pretty awesome. Meundies.com slash real GM is the place to start. We'll talk briefly about the East. There wasn't as much real movement there, partially because Boston and Philly didn't, I mean, Boston, it was more like trade for Kawhi or don't, considering it seems like Anthony Davis wasn't on the market. Good on the Pelicans for, for doing that, I guess. But Philly certainly got deeper. I think that one of something that has gotten lost a little bit in all this is that they needed the infusion of Ersan Ilyasova and Marco Bellinelli during last year, partially due to injury, but also partially just because they had a lot of guys that weren't really ready to play. And so getting Wilson Chandler will certainly help that. And hopefully they can get something from, from Markel Fultz and everything, everything there. But what I find interesting about the East is just beyond Toronto, which we already discussed, is just where is everything going to go after that? Because there are a lot of teams that are intriguing, that could be better or just could fall off. And so, I mean, you have Cleveland that lost their best player, that lost the series MVP candidate. And then a lot of teams that I'm generally apathetic towards, whether that is Milwaukee, and I think hopefully Budenholzer can really help that. Indiana, I like a lot of what they did, but you worry how much of it was based on shooting both directions. And then, you know, like teams like Washington, Detroit, and Charlotte, and Miami, who they're all certainly fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking them at all, but like, it's, it's, I would, I would describe that group overall as uninspiring. I think that's probably a fair <laughs> word for it. I think that is a fair word. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of teams that, you know, can reasonably, if not expect, consider it likely to make the playoffs. And, you know, one of those teams then is going to have the opportunity in all likelihood to jump up into that four seed in the East and have home court advantage in the first round and then be favored to win a playoff series. And, you know, I think looking at where they started and what I thought of their moves, you know, on paper, I like the Pacers the most out of that group, I would say. But it's interesting. Again, the, the Cheney projections are not anything that I'm going to publish because of my calls with them. But the, the Cheney projections have them actually 10th in the, East, in the Eastern Conference, which I, I certainly did not expect. And, you know, then one team that I, I think quietly maybe has jumped into the fringes of that group is Brooklyn with their offseason moves and, and boosting their bench. And Brooklyn made a series of interesting decisions this summer by adding volume over like a single individual or two that could that could really help them. And that volume to me makes them a lot more resilient in terms of injuries. And the big question for them is kind of also going to be who plays? Like if it's a meritocracy, if that's what Kenny Atkinson can do, if this can work well, but if there are certain guys that have pressures in place and 
and we're not necessarily talking about D'Angelo Russell here. I think D'Angelo Russell is, I mean, Russell versus Dinwiddie or playing those guys together is a very interesting part of this, but more in terms of the, the three, four, and maybe even a little bit of the two rotation there of who steps in and who steps back. Yeah, I think both of those guys will have an opportunity to get minutes, even though there there are a number of contributors on the wing. Yeah, power forward is going to be an interesting spot for them. They've got you now Jared Dudley, who you know uh, still was a pretty positive, you know, play, plus minus player last year in Phoenix, uh, d- despite the fact that he's no longer the kind of athlete that he once was during his prime. You know, he's just still such a heady player, someone who's in the right spot. And that that particularly stood out on last year's Phoenix team. But you know, then you've got Kenneth Fareed in the mix for backup minutes in the front court you know will he get a chance to play or will they instead you know try to create some more playing time on the wing by shifting Damari Carroll down to four on a more regular basis and and playing him kind of as a backup to Rondé Hollis Jefferson yeah that's definitely an interesting idea and and how they work all that together and they have the opportunity for some of their young guys to to take the reins like you know I would expect Jared Allen to start at the five which is great I really like Jared Allen and I wonder about what, where Brooklyn, how they're going to approach this season, just in terms of competitiveness. Maybe they do kind of like the Clippers, where they say being competitive will help us get free agents, because with all the moves they made this summer, it looks like they're planning on at least attempting to make some noise in 2019. But this is the first year in a long time that they've had their pick unencumbered, no swaps, no anything. So that would, in many other circumstances, be an incentive to tank. So it could also be determined by just how the first two months of the season go. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, often teams will go into the season thinking, okay, let's give it a run for the playoffs. And then, you know, if that falls south, goes south, that's when you all of a sudden start looking at, you know, maybe dealing some of those veterans. Tamari Carroll could be a candidate for a deadline trade to a contender. Uh, I'm on the record as believing they'll eventually get positive trade value for him, despite also getting the uh, first round pick from Toronto. Toronto to swallow his salary last summer you know that's the kind of move that could help them both in terms of you know getting into lottery position and also picking up some kind of small asset maybe a second round pick to uh you know in exchange for him another big difference between the bottom of the east and the bottom of the west is that i think granted some of them are bad enough that it's not really going to affect a lot of things but i think every team in the west is is actively going to try to make the playoffs at least at the beginning and in the east i think the dregs are going to push a little bit less hard. I mean, the Knicks are going to be without Kristaps Porzingis for an indeterminate amount of time, maybe half the season, hopefully a lot less than that. Hopefully he comes back really, really soon. The Hawks, I think they know what they are. Giving the reins to Trey Young is a is a thing there. I support it. I think that was a, a if you're going to go that direction, throw a point guard like Trey Young into the at the Wolves. But then you know maybe maybe the Bulls and Magic are kind of the parallels here to the the Kings and the Suns, where they're they're going to see what they can do. But if things don't work out the way that they're hoping they will, then they can kind of ease back on the throttle a little bit pretty early on. Yeah, and I wouldn't say I'm particularly optimistic about the chances of any of those teams. I mean, Cleveland then is the other team that's interesting in terms of direction because much like we talked about with Brooklyn, you know, it seems like right for now that they're still thinking about trying to be reasonably competitive without LeBron. But, you know, if they start struggling, I think we'll see more talk about them potentially trading Kevin Love when he becomes eligible six months after his extension. Yeah, and with Love 
there's actually a parallel here with uh, a little bit with Marcus Smart, where those teams, those front offices are making a bet, not only about the player and their fit on the team. And I'm excited to see if we can get something closer to Minnesota Kevin Love in terms of offensive role this year. But with both Love and Smart, you're sitting there looking six months or a year into the future going, is this contract a positive contract? And so with Smart, I think that's going to be like three years, 40 million at that point. And with Love, it's going to be a whole lot more than that. But Love is, you know, establish himself as an all-star and everything like that. And there will certainly be a lot of teams that are looking at cap space. There will be a, a lot of teams that have the flexibility to take on that money. They could also theoretically, if Cleveland wanted or Boston wanted to take on salary, depending on what sort of trade, like smart, one of the benefits of having him is salary ballast. So they're making a bet that they properly evaluate what those players are going to look like six months to a year from now. I, I think there's some interesting fits potentially out there for for Love, you know, next summer if those teams aren't able to land a marquee free agent. You know, I think probably the big markets are still going to try to keep their their powder dry, as the expression goes, for future years. But if you're a team like Utah or Indiana that isn't really a destination for free agents, you know, and are trying to win now so that you know the you're getting more benefit out of the early part of Love's extension to kind of offset the fact that we expect the, the last couple of years of that expen- extension to become an overpay. I, I think it could make sense for those teams. Yeah, and this is also an important thing that I had to learn over a series of years about kind of projecting these sorts of things is that my evaluation is if I think I'm right, is is has some value because maybe if that's where the league is going, sometimes it's a lagging indicator, but generally things, if you're right, they pull in that direction. But as you said, there are teams with different incentives, there are teams with different structures, and there are also teams that have different opportunity costs where maybe they don't have as much flexibility, They can't, or, they, or as you were saying, teams that aren't major free agent destinations. And so in the abstract, you would say, oh, $30, $30 million, you can do better than Kevin Love. But there are certain teams in certain situations where th- either they're thinking Kevin Love is better than I think, and that's certainly possible, certainly fair, or that they just can't really do much better than that for $30 million. Which, of course, is the thinking that went into the Blake Griffin trade for Detroit. Now, we yes, expect is. Cleveland to get that kind of return to get both you know, a player in Tobias Harris, who arguably is just about as good as Blake Griffin, and on a, a better, albeit shorter, contract, and then also the first-round pick. And what was really only bird rights on Avery Bradley, but those bird rights still helped them sign him to a team fr- to a right. well team friendly. We'll have to see how he actually plays, but at least a contract that didn't that fit in within their obligations. Yeah, and and you know it's possible the Clippers could have gotten something for Bradley had they wanted to flip him at the deadline rather than than keep those bird rights. Sure, they could, and I'm excited again, like like with a couple other teams, Love and Cleveland being one of them. Tobias Harris, if they're going to start Beverly and Bradley together, he should have an opportunity to create. A a little bit with the ball in his hands. I mean, Be- Beverly can certainly do some of that, but he's not a traditional like his. He's not that ball dominant one in an ideal circumstance. He can he can contribute there. And so some of these teams that have unusual pieces, how they actually make that work. I mean, we saw that with Milwaukee, though. I think the Giannis at point guard stuff is a little bit overstated. He certainly did have the ball in his hands a lot. And teams need to be ready, willing, and able to maximize the strengths and minimize the weaknesses of their players. And there are certainly a lot of teams that are in that circumstance now. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think always the most exciting part of the early part of the season. Yeah, still going to talk about Summer League with Kevin Pelton, but I want to take a moment before that to tell you about Quip. 
truth of the matter is most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, whether that's for not long enough or we don't change our brush heads on time or both. <laughs> In many cases, it is both. And some of that is due to brands focusing on flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing. And Quip does not do that. What makes them really different is that it is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to clean your teeth. And that size is really an appeal for me. Originally, when I got Quip, I thought, oh, this is just an unbelievable travel toothbrush and an electric toothbrush that is the size of, of a regular, well, you know, like a manual one, but it's so much more than that. It is an excellent toothbrush, an everyday toothbrush, and part of why I like it so much is their built-in timer. So it makes sure not only that you change sections of your mouth at the right times, but also that you brush long enough. So it has these pulses that work really well. And then the other part that's really impressed me about Quip, having used them for years, is their subscription plans. And it's all, it's not built around maximizing profit for them or anything like that. It's about dental health. You get new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. It's an amazing service. I use it. That's part of what makes the brush so awesome. And if you if you want it, there's a suction mount that goes can grow right on a mirror, and so it takes up less space. It's already, as I mentioned, way smaller. And it is an absolutely fantastic toothbrush. It is better than I, I ever would have expected when I got one for the first time. And on top of everything else, they start at just 25 bucks. And so what you can do is you go to getquip.com slash real GM. And not only can you get one for, I mean, start, start at 25 bucks, but if you go to that URL, you get your first refill pack for free with the toothbrush. And so they do that. As I said, it's on the dentist recommended schedule. So you get that on top of a great value on a toothbrush. And also, of course, it says that you come from us. So again, that is getquip.com slash real GM, getquip.com slash real GM for that first refill pack free on an absolutely fantastic toothbrush. I also want to tell you about TrueCar. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip you also might not know about. TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid, so they know if they are getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you're ready to buy a new or a used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Originally, what we were going to primarily talk about, and there's still a lot that I want to get to with it, is Summer League. And I think a good place to begin with that is a piece that you wrote for ESPN about what we take away from it. And so what I thought, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I thought the, the most interesting element of that piece was that you really can take something away from the players who really exceed expectations and the players who don't live up to expectations. However, it is worth taking into account that those original expectations still really matter. So you talked about like the guys that exceeded expectations and the players who didn't, generally speaking, the higher projection players were still projected to have better seasons. It's just that there was still some probative value in the performances that we saw. Yeah, I think it's one of these nuanced things that's difficult to communicate because we either want it to be summer league is meaningless because one time Josh Selby was the co-MVP 
of summer league and then he got cut before the start of the season or summer league is completely meaningful because look at what Kyle Kuzma did last year and then he surprised all of us during the regular season and the fact is that that both of those stories happen both of them are valid and they you know you kind of have to take into account the the probability that someone's going to follow the Kuzma path or they're going to follow the Josh Selby path and and not just rely kind of on those extreme uh, possible outcomes so yeah there, there definitely is predictive value to summer league there there is i i think it would be very difficult to question that conclusion but it is also not as meaningful as the predictive power of you know a player's college career if they're they're a draft pick or their previous nba career if they're a, a veteran player and one of the fascinating points that you brought up in that uh, sorry it wasn't in that it was in a later piece that you did with Mike Schmitz is that one of the players who benefited in terms of their stock or if you want to call it the rookie of the year chances from summer league is actually a guy who didn't play at all in Luka Doncic because maybe other than DeAndre Ayton which is getting into something I don't really care about rookie of the year projections as much where the idea of of rookie of the year versus best player who is a rookie but the idea that while there were certain players and we'll talk about them that that stepped up nobody really had that going to be an important piece of a really successful team type of a summer league, which that player would have become the front runner for rookie of the year. Right. I mean, the guys who, you know, played well during summer league, Jaron Jackson, Wendell Carter are probably not going to play as large roles during the regular season, or at least not in terms of the kind of box score stats that, you know, typically translate into rookie of the year. And so the, you know, the players who I think are most in contention because of, you know, that history of how rookie of the year voting has gone are Aiden Doncic and Marvin Bagley. And of those three, you know, Bagley was, I, I would say somewhat unimpressive during summer league. He came in on my list of players who underperformed their projections uh, and that typically have seen that carry over in terms of underperforming those projections during the regular season. Aiden was, you know, I'd say more or less as, as expected or as advertised, very effective on the glass, consistently put up good numbers, you know, double, double or near double, double numbers, despite the fact that he didn't have a lot of help offensively from his point guards and, and, you know, they struggled to get him the ball, but also was prone to turnovers. And we saw kind of the same sort of defensive weaknesses that led me to consider Doncic the best prospect in the draft ahead of Aiden. Yeah. I can definitely see all that. And it's also a real big challenge to figure out how Aiton's going to fit into this mix in Phoenix. I mean, it looks like Devin Booker is going to have the ball in his hands a lot. They have That means, theoretically, they're going to have maybe have some lower usage guys on the wing. So maybe that means more post touches for Aiton or pick and pops or something else like that. But also that puts a lot on Devin Booker's shoulders. And so not having a traditional pick and roll, pick and pop, whatever point guard might make it harder for him to get reliable scoring opportunities. I think certainly so. I mean, you know, he's with the exception of post touches, even then you're, you're dependent on a quality entry pass. I mean, I don't think he's necessarily going to be a player who's going to create a ton one-on-one at least early in his career. You know, I think you're, you'll look at him eventually developing into this, this pick and roll threat and, the Suns don't have that. the other half of that at point guard on the roster. If they do have it, it's going to be Booker. So I think, to me, the standout, at least in terms of relative to expectations, which is amazing because he was a lottery pick, and I had him as a lottery pick, was Wendell Carter. And what Carter did that was really important was he assuaged a lot of the concerns because he moved a lot better, showed showed more burst offensively and defensively, 
And it became much easier for me to see him as a, not only as a capable NBA player, but as something beyond a capable NBA player. Absolutely. I mean, I think the way I think about it is the the Wendell Carter we saw during Summer League was the Wendell Carter that his believers discussed during the draft process. And, you know, I, I think it was probably helpful if you'd had the chance to see him see him work out individually or, you know, back to the early youth levels because of the fact that he didn't get a chance to play an NBA style game at Duke where they played a lot of zone defensively, very rarely played pick and roll offensively. Like he wasn't doing the kind of th- it w- things at Duke that he was doing during summer league and will presumably continue to do in the NBA. But yeah, I mean, defensively, he looked like a quick study in terms of his ability to either protect the rim with you know powerful block shots or to switch out defensively and keep up with guards and that's exactly what you're looking for in the modern NBA I'm hopeful that he's going to get an opportunity a significant opportunity to play this year in Chicago he will certainly have opportunities to block shots with what it looks like their defensive perimeter guys are going to be other than Chris Dunn who of course is is awesome defensively but he again like it, you, you talked about this a little bit in terms of like the rookie of the year stuff you know he, he'll be a I, I can see a, a very good player in him and it will also always take young guys time to adjust to the difference between summer league and NBA in terms of athleticism intelligence skill level is is absolutely massive but I just love the way he played and also there was one one play that really stuck out for me I think it was against Memphis I, I popped into that gym for a little bit and he had made a couple shots in that game and so he got the ball I think it was a little bit inside the three-point line he pump faked took two hard but fast dribbles towards the paint got enough attention and then I think he drew a foul and while it's certainly great if oh he can you could have a big man who can dance around and and make that dunk over somebody else if he can do that with any consistency if he can force that close if he can make a couple steps force the defense to react that's all any even even a very very good team that's all they're ever going to need offensively from him and I don't think he's ever going to be a big time scorer which is of course kind of the the criticism if you want to call it that or the knock on him in the draft process but you know we've seen I mean Al Horford is the obvious comparison that people made throughout that that process and we've seen how valuable he can can be to a competitive team and you know if everything hits with Wendell Carter and he continues to develop along the lines of what we've seen I I think that's you know his potential I kind of describe summer league in terms of two basic things that I'm looking for one is guys who pop who kind of you could say the too good for summer league which are usually second or third year guys there are a series of different players the for me the best example of that was Devin Booker a couple of years ago when he was there for Team USA and hanging out with his from buddy Tyler Ulis and just planted a b- bunch of guys in I think two summer league games but then there are you know those rookies I think Wendell Carter was one of these who who pop in that circumstance and then the other group is guys who you hope pop and then don't really that don't stand out and I we can start with the guys who who did stand out whether they were first round picks or lottery picks or whatever else who who really did fit that bill for you this year you know it's interesting because I feel like John Collins at different times fell into both categories yeah I agree with you yeah I saw him in Salt Lake City and he wasn't necessarily particularly impressive there in Vegas by contrast you know he did look like the uh, you know one of the best rookies coming back for summer league uh, that you know we kind of would have expected from him yeah I, I Collins is, is definitely interesting in that realm I thought you know at certain times I think it was a little bit overstated but I like the energy that Kevin Knox played with and he looked he certainly looked like an NBA caliber athlete, which was never a concern of his. He never worried that he was an NBA caliber athlete. 
and since we're since I'm praising the Knicks, Mitchell Robinson, who is a fascinating like his his backstory. Watched one of his full Louisiana high school games. He looked like an NBA like athlete at that point, but seeing him make the jump from basically high school basketball to summer league basketball was striking, and I'm excited to see where it goes from there. But that was a difference for me. Like there were certainly guys that had good games. Shea Gilgis Alexander is another one of those for sure. And when Trey Young looked good, Trey Young looked good, and Jaron had that game which you saw in person and. Salt Lake City where he hit everything in sight. There wasn't really, to me, a Donovan Mitchell this year who just crushed everything that was in front of him. I mean, Mitchell's summer league was interesting because probably, you know, he he scored at such high volume with really low efficiency That's in, true. in Vegas because of the fact that they had like no other talent on that team. Dante Exum played the games in Salt Lake City that we were there for, and then they shut him down. And I think they shut someone else down, but I can't remember who the other guy was off the top of my head. And it was like just Donovan Mitchell on off- offense, and it was kind of uh, a training ground for what he was going to see during the, the NBA season. You often see that with a lot of second-year guys who get asked to play these much larger roles that they, than they would play as role players in the NBA. OG Aninobi was maybe an interesting example of that inter- this year. And then also we should probably mention at some point here the uh, the MVP of Summer League, Josh Hart. Yeah, I thought Hart looked good and f- showed kind of how he could work as a little bit more of a high usage guy. But also, you know, he, he was hitting his shots not as, as much. I think it was like 37% from three when he's usually, when he was at, not usually, when he was at 40% last year. But yeah, I liked what he showed and... I also like you know there were other guys who it's kind of not in the pop not pop area but who I thought I saw more from them than I expected I thought Mo Wagner certainly fit that description he was more active defensively than I had expected I'm not sure all the steals and blocks that he had are going to necessarily translate to the next level but it certainly was good to see yeah and those are you know blocks in particular are a category that do does tend to translate pretty well to the regular season as opposed to you know hot shooting is something that can often be a fluke during summer league so I'm maybe not quite as excited about Svi Mikhailuk's performance as Lakers fans are. And then maybe the most the ultimate example of that was Furkan Korkmaz's first game in Vegas where he he went nuts and from three and scored 40-plus points and then ended up shooting uh, under 40% from the field, 37% from three over his total six-game sample. Yeah, it was certainly fun being in the building for that game and just, just the electricity. But yeah, I mean, the, the transferability of it is a big problem. I mentioned it before, but I think we should talk about him a little bit more substantively. I thought Shea Gilgasal Alexander really did show something. And I didn't see as much of Colin Sexton, but I know people who spent more time watching him really liked what they saw as well. Yeah, I didn't see as much of Sexton either. Uh, Gilgis Alexander, though, that was one of the highlights of Summer League. Because, you know, I, I maybe didn't have as good a feel for him. I, I, did, I was fortunate to see a lot of this year's top prospects in person because of the PK-80 tournament in Portland. So, you know, Bamba was there. Duke was there. Oklahoma was there, although I, sadly I did not get a chance to see Trey Young because of the way that my schedule worked out. But, you know, one of their games was opposite Bamba versus Bagley, which was a must-watch. Gilgis Alexander was someone I didn't have as good a feel for. And then also, I, I don't know if anyone, you know, just based on his year at Kentucky, had that good of a feel because of the fact that their spacing was so poor that, uh, you know, it, it tended to cramp his game in particular. And, you know, what really stood out was his ability to get to the basket over and over again, despite the fact that he is not yet a great outside shooter. And it always, I mean, the challenge of, of adapting 
drafting those Kentucky guys, and certainly each one of their teams has different strengths and weaknesses, but they've had a couple of these limited shooting squads out there, or you have a circumstance like Carl Anthony Towns where Calipari just didn't want him to do what the NBA wanted him to do offensively. And that maybe was giving a lot of their guys the short shrift just because it made life harder on them. And Shea certainly fits that. I wonder, as somebody who I loved at the Hoop Summit, I think I'm one of the only people who did was Jared Vanderbilt. I wonder how he's going to look with a little bit more experience. And maybe, I mean, I think it's going to take Diallo a lot of time. He just signed a a three-year contract with the Thunder on Wednesday. And I wonder how a lot of that's going to work out. And, and But for me, if we transition to the, the guys that didn't stand out, for me, that was more on the, because I don't expect a ton from rookies, on the later year thing. And the first guy I thought of was Dragon Bender, which was disheartening to say the least. Yeah, yeah, he, he definitely, and I think last year qualified on my list of players who underperformed their projections in summer league. And, and that did kind of translate over to him not making as big a leap from year one to year two as you would have hoped, even though he did add three point range to his game. I, I feel like. Dragon in particular is someone who's going to play be much more effective the better teammates he has around him because of the fact that he hasn't yet developed the ability to really create his own shot a lot it's going to be kind of a pick and pop game and then also you know defensively if if other players are in the right spot it's probably going to make him look better so you know I think that Phoenix's poor guard play hurt him even more perhaps than it did DeAndre Ayton but you know still at this point with two years of NBA experience you'd like to see more from him uh, I would say the guy that you know I was so somewhat disappointed with his his teammate Josh Jackson in terms of his shot selection which was just horrendous and uh you know I, I get that you want to try to expand your game in summer league and it's not necessarily about just trying to win the game but you know the the way he was playing is not it, this is not like okay let's let OG and you know be create a little bit like Josh Jackson has done that in the NBA and did it reasonably effectively in the second half which gave Suns fans a lot of hope for his development but you know that that decision making just wasn't there for him in this setting what struck me, I think it was in the first game, it was at least the first game I saw the Suns play, Jackson was out there and was just taking a ton of shots and, and forcing things, and then partially because you're going against worse players and all that, they brought in Mikhail Bridges, and Bridges hit more shots, you know, that's, that can always be a part of it, seeing the ball go in makes a guy look better, but I was just sitting there going, this just makes more sense, like Mikhail Bridges wasn't wasn't forcing it as much, was taking shots when they were presented to him, and then and wasn't getting into it, and so that allowed, I thought that Aiton looked a little bit better sometimes in those circumstances, though he got a quick hook in a couple games for early on, boo Jack Cooley, but then eventually fan favorite as he always is, Jack Cooley. And I wonder how Kokoshkov is going to get, make this Suns rotation work because they have a big commitment in a lot of these guys. I mean, yeah, Josh Jackson was the fourth pick la- last year, but Mikhail Bridges was the 10th pick and the Suns gave up a, an unprotected 2021 first to get him in. So if he's looking like a better fit with some of those players, I think he's going to get the chance and the minutes are there like they have a lot but they have a lot of guys to fill them I mean I sometimes forget about TJ Warren fitting in with this team and you know he can score I don't love him defensively and they're you know again the ecosystem is going to be a little bit weird with this team but who the Suns play and when is going to be wild this year yeah and I know you know the that Kokoshkov has said that he doesn't want to play Devin Booker a point guard but it, it feels like just you know unless they make there's some other move coming I mean, at this point, it's Brandon Knight, Elia Kobo, who you know, I think was up and down, certainly, in Summer League, uh, and then Shaquille Harrison, who who looked very good defensively during Summer League, but isn't really a pure point guard in his own right. I mean, those are your options at the position. And then when you add to that the fact that there's such a crowd for minutes on the wing, 
with all those guys they've added. You know, I think some of those will probably come at power forward at the expense of Bender and Marquise Chris, but some of them may also come at, you know, pushing Booker to point guard. So you've got uh, a little more playing time at shooting guard. From that 2017 class, so those are guys who are coming into their second year. I've been a big Dennis Smith believer for a long time. I still, you know, his athleticism and all that. He wasn't, I don't think he was awful or anything like that in summer league, but what concerned me with him was a player with his physical ability. I expect to maybe get to the basket more, show, be a little bit more dominant. I mean, he's never going to bully guys. That's just not, Dennis Smith isn't built like that. But I didn't see his combination of athleticism and skill translate as much as I wanted it to. It wasn't a giant red flag, but maybe a little tiny red flag. I would say he won my I don't want to be here award for some reason. That's a fair way of interpreting it as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, part of it is uh, the athletics is only going to do so much if you attempt 13 of your 24 shots over two po- two games from three-point range. That's true. <laughs> and, and, make and, two and, you're, and you're not a three-point guy. Like, that's not where his value is derived. Yeah, I mean, he did at least, you know, he, he made plays as his playmaker for teammates. I'm, I'm probably not going to read too much into this for Dennis Smith. I think this, this is one of those ones that will be pretty quickly, quickly forgotten. But, yeah, I agree that uh, he, he was definitely one of the guys that, that did not stand out or not – at least did not stand out in the way you would hope he would. For me, there was another group which was kind of I was hopeful for the second the second round guys that are second year players. So like Rab and Wesawundu, you know the guys who already had established themselves, Jordan Bell and Ojale. I didn't have any real stakes for those guys, but like Jawan Evans, a lot of those guys in the second round. It, it concerned me a little bit just because or Dwayne Bacon I would have in this group too, where you're kind of going, okay, well, they've, they've had a little bit of time now. Maybe training camp, they'll get another couple months to work on their game. They could get there. But not many of those guys really stuck out to me. The ones who were already good looked good, but the ones who hadn't really shown it didn't, didn't show me big steps. I thought in that group, one of my biggest disappointments, not in terms of his play, but just for the fact that he got injured again was Frank Jackson of the yeah. Pelicans, who was getting on a co- an NBA court in a Pelicans uniform in a, in a uh, competitive game for the first time after having multiple foot surgeries last year during his first year in the NBA, and, and actually was quite effective in that limited time he played, but uh, then suffered a sprained ankle, and that, that ended his uh, summer league after 13 minutes. I saw more from Derek Jones Jr. than earlier. I, he had a, a solid game in Sacramento when I was there in person. He did have that, what I looked like it could have been a much worse injury. It sounds like it's an ankle injury. I haven't actually heard a specific projection on how long he's supposed to be out. Yeah, I think it was just a sprain, so well, that shouldn't good. be a long-term concern. Yeah, I mean, other than Glenn Robinson the third, usually sprained ankles don't keep guys out for a really long period of time, and that was apparently like basically one of the worst sprained ankles that, that really does happen. So I... I, I hopeful that he could get an opportunity with Miami. I thought Bam was another example of a player who he was certainly fine. I didn't see anything that was that was bad from him, but I kind of I was going like, "Oh, it would have been so cool if he was just just beasting on everybody." And certainly he can finish alley-oops and all that, and you could make an argument that his game doesn't necessarily fit summer league because it is he's such a dependent talent offensively. But like I, I didn't see him flying around the court as much as I hoped to. Yeah, that could be another case where the motivation wasn't quite there. But uh, it's a little tougher, I think, for those those second year big men who have already established themselves as rotation players because it's not the same as like we were talking about earlier. 
earlier where you can kind of ask them to expand their game a ton necessarily. What did you see from Zach Collins? I didn't watch a ton of the Blazers, though they, of course, had a wonderful summer league overall. You know, watched I watched Baldwin a little bit, and they had a lot of they had a lot of guys certainly out there. But Collins, I think, is the most important of those moving forwards. Him and probably Anthony Simons. I think so. I mean, again, I would say much like last year, he was probably better defensively than he was offensively, which is you know not necessarily his reputation or even so much how he played last year when he was really primarily playing power forward alongside Ed Davis. He's going to be in a different role this year where, you know, with Davis leaving and not being replaced on the roster, it looks like it's going to be Collins as the backup center unless Myers Leonard really surprises all of us with his performance this season. You know, at that spot, his his ability to stretch the floor is a shooter is a plus, but, uh, you know, he's going to have to prove he can defend bigger, bigger opponents in a way that, you know, was sometimes an issue for him. That's why Ed Davis was such a nice partner for him last year. Was there anybody, I mean, I know Trey Young was, was probably in a negative way. Was there anybody in, in Utah that kind of, that really stuck out to you just because that experience and I, the, one of the fun things about that compared to Vegas and I went to Sacramento this year, which was the same is the idea that you get to see players more intently because you're not missing anything. You're there for the whole game. You're watching it. Was there anybody else who really stood out to you? Yes. Unless uh, DeMarcus Cousins has, happens to sign uh, sure. at halftime of one of the games. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know that there really was. I mean, well, you know, Stan, like Stanton Kid looked good, right. right? Yes, if you want to tell my uh, my favorite unsigned player, Stanton Kid, who uh, has, was after undrafted several years ago, played in Turkey last year, kind of developed into a key player over there, and I, I'm sure that's what got him on the radar of the Jazz. And you know, he played mostly, I think, as a stretch four for Utah in summer league, and developed really nice chemistry with Grayson Allen. Was hitting a bunch of corner threes and uh, looked very much like someone who would be at home in the NBA. And I think the last person to talk about with a little bit more substance, somebody that you saw in Utah, but also we saw in Vegas, with Trey Young, I thought that you made an interesting point in that piece with Schmitz about, yeah, I think you had him third in your kind of rookie of the year stuff. And the idea being that boom bust guys in this class make sense because a boom is going to be, you know, for, for a guy like Trey Young is, is going to be the way that somebody really does dominate in this class. And so there were times... I think his passing is absolutely there, though he didn't create the windows as much as I wanted to. So I think that people who wanted to to dislike Trey Young or who had an investment in that certainly saw that, and people who had an investment or wanted to see him do well had something there too, even though maybe it was, especially in Utah, it was more of the negative than the positive. Which I would say is generally probably how it is, but uh, this is a particularly extreme case because of the fact that Young was such a polarizing prospect. You know, the, the contrast between the incredible production he had last season in Oklahoma and, you know, his relatively limited physical gifts, I think, really opened up the possibility for people to disagree wildly about Trey Young. And, and yeah, you could pull positives and negatives from his performance here. I mean, obviously his shooting, particularly in Utah, was not good enough. He struggled to, to finish, which was already a concern going in, is even probably more of a concern, and then also wasn't hitting the threes off the dribble in Salt Lake, and particularly at the rate, you know, that he's going to need to do it to, you know, kind of set up defenses with that threat of those shots. But, you know, on the plus side, and uh, Ben Falk also wrote about this in a good piece on cleaning the glass this week, he, the court vision he displayed was really incredible. And and he's got, you know, the ability to draw a def- the defense's attention despite the fact that he's not a great finisher or, you know, a great one-on-one, you know, not someone who's really skilled at getting to the basket one-on-one. But when you put him in the pick-and-roll situation and, you know, add in that threat of the pull-up shot – you know, that allows him to get to the basket, draw defenders, kick out to teammates. And, uh, you know, I think that's where he's going to be most effective at the start of his career. 
Agreed. And I'm excited that it looks like the Hawks are going to have more shooting around. I mean, we'll, we'll see. I'd be great. I, I say that and then they signed Alex Len. So maybe that maybe that the center spot, at least they'll they'll go more traditional. But getting Spellman, if Herder can actually play, he was unavailable in summer league due to that wrist issue, that they can go in that direction because Trey Young is going to need real estate to work with. And I think they'll they'll eventually get there, though, of course, it could take some time. Not that the Hawks are particularly concerned about that because taking some time means they get better draft picks. And while that is not the only way to get better, it certainly is one way. I mean, they would seem to be the team most committed to rebuilding, you know, thinking long-term in the league right now. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. And there will be teams that find themselves in that direction really quickly, whether that be due to injury or just not being as good as everybody else. But I think the Hawks are going to be one of the only teams that start there. And we'll have to see what lottery reform looks like, how that affects a lot of these teams, whether it really does make a difference in terms of the incentives. It might end up making more of a difference in the last week rather than the last month, because being in the bottom three doesn't make a difference. Being being which spot in the bottom three doesn't matter, but being in the bottom three sure does. So I'm interested to see how it manifests itself. And then obviously the first year doesn't necessarily have to be reflective of where it moves from there. Yeah, it is really going to be interesting to watch. And, you know, I think... I mean, I think, you know, that the comparison with last year is probably going to flatter things a little bit because just last year was such a unique situation in terms of the number of teams that were densely packed together after the trade deadline and after the all-star break. It really created a lot of incentive for all those teams to kind of separate themselves from each other. Well, and also if we're talking about the Western Conference, the separation happened with with the playoffs not even being in the, like, even in an optimist view, I mean, the Kings, Mavs, Grizzlies, Suns were all basically, they were all out, and the, and the Lakers had different set of incentives because they didn't have their own pick, and so those teams pushing, they, they had no, they didn't even have any light at the end of the tunnel, so it makes it a lot easier to, to dig to dig deeper to go into the crevasse. I, I guess the one thing that could make it worse this year is if you're a team that is in that group, there's, you know, if, if you know, you're you're starting the season with aspirations of winning games, but knowing that you might pivot toward, you know, thinking about lottery positioning, whichever team is kind of the first to break from that pack and head to the bottom is going to derive a major first mover advantage on, you know, everyone except perhaps Atlanta. Yeah, that's certainly true. And a lot of times, I mean, people people think about tanking as being a, a season-long commitment, but it doesn't have to be that way. And yeah, how teams react to what they have is, is going to be a challenge. And also, there are some very interesting pick protection incentives here, not just, you know, like I, I've always said that lottery protection, I don't think affects a team's circumstances because making the playoffs is a greater positive than losing the pick. But the Cavs with that top 10 protection, the Grizzlies, I think is top eight, and then it goes to top six after this year. And so some of those circumstances could actually affect the way teams look at this season, depending on how things go. Danny, you're telling me you're interested in pick protection? I have to stay on brand, man. I'm I'm the, I'm the, I'm like the Orlando magic. I know what I care about and I stick with what I care about. (laughs) It's good to know what you do. Well, absolutely. That that's, that's how it works. Anything else that you feel summer league, not summer league, that is something that we should, that we should discuss. That is a a part of the kind of converse that you think should be a part of the conversation right now. Yeah. You know, I think we covered a pretty good uh, swath of topics here. So yeah, I'm I'm just uh, excited for everyone to, uh, Get, get their rosters complete and start thinking about what next season is going to look like. Yeah, and we will, it looks like, I mean, with the kind of Kyrie equivalent trade with Kawhi happening earlier in the year, I think we will get a better chance to really get our sink our teeth into what these teams are going to look like, hopefully. It'll, 
It'll be close to the long-awaited second moratorium. Yeah, the lo- yeah, the, some something in like early August or something like that. It'll be exciting. But thanks as always for taking the time. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time to come on. You can of course read him at ESPN, often ESPN Insider. You can hopefully see him on ESPN TV. That certainly happens, and I wish it happened a little bit more because I think he does a great job. And you can follow him on Twitter at K Pelton, K P E L T O N. Every once in a while, somebody says that I'm the hardest working guy in basketball media, and I immediately say that's not true because while there are other serious contenders, obviously, but for me, the the person who fits that description the best is Kevin, and he does phenomenal work, also turns it around ludicrously quickly, which is super impressive to me with trade grades in particular and, and free agent reactions and he is unbelievable at, at what he does. And that's part of the reason, actually, he's on this show less than I would like is because his time is very valuable. And so I do. Well, I always say I appreciate guest X taking the time, but I really do with Kevin as well, because I know what he's doing when he's not doing this. And so I really it makes it, it means a lot to me. And I'm guessing I don't know for sure that this is going to mark the transition, not a binding transition, but transition from kind of these more big picture ones to a little bit of smaller picture. Something I love doing with Real Jam Radio is getting really in depth on the divisions. It's something I think I started three or four years ago, and I bring on guests, usually two guests at a time, and we break down a division in full. And so that's probably not going to be the next six episodes. It'll probably be six of the next, let's say, eight, but they should all be in that mix. And I've already started talking with potential guests and guest combinations. And so those will be coming up soon. You can look forward to that. So we go through every division, what happened, what we're looking forward to, and everything else like that. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing. It is great if it's Apple Podcasts, but if it's not, I understand. And if you want to be super awesome, do it in both. Do it in whatever you listen to. Do it in Apple Podcasts, should those be different. You can also subscribe, download every episode that is especially big with a show like Real Jam Radio that does not come out on a specific day. So if you subscribe, then whenever it pops in to your podcast player, it's there. You don't have to worry about seeing a tweet from me or something else, even though I do make sure that it's out there a fair amount. You can also spread the word using whatever medium you want. If that's telling a friend and if that's a specific episode, hey, this one is great or Real Jam Radio, support it. Social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. And the biggest one with this show, with any other podcast is checking out our advertisers. So MeUndies, MeUndies.com slash real gm gets you 15 percent off in that free trial offer and then if you send your proof of purchase to gift at podcast1.com and put real jam radio in the subject line to know they came from us you can get another pair for free which is awesome getquip.com slash real gm it is a fantastic brush i say it because i've used it for a while and that gets you a free refill pack on top of their already great prices and then true car great place to buy new and used cars i have a lot of written work that will be coming out in the near term Well, a lot by summer standards, not a lot by my regular season standards, working on a bunch of different projects for The Athletic, for Real GM, and kind of in various stages of writing, I like to bounce between things in the off season and then make sure because that allows me to look at it more times unless there's something that is super time sensitive. So expect those to come out over the next couple weeks, I would say it'll probably, probably be there. And 
Yeah, and Dunked On is still, we're, we're twice a week, but we do basically two-hour episodes every single one, so it's close to what we do throughout the week, and you can check that out as well. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter, at Danny LaRue, and you can send feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. Thanks so much for listening. Don't know yet when we'll be back next week, but we'll be back next week because that's what the show is. So thanks so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up. Do it for your besties and the resties. It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts. To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars. You want to go. Yes, go travel, go explore, go find a new city, go reconnect with friends, go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free and you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.